is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this podcast, I talk to ex-chairman of the JC, Rob Jenner, about his memories of growing up around the British motor industry in Coventry. Richard West gives us an insight into the logistics behind getting a race team around the world. And we go behind the scenes at Thruxton with Tom Robinson's Race Diary. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well. We're starting this episode with an announcement this week as we can reveal the winner of our virtual Jaguar Festival, Concours de Elegance. Now, for the past month, you've been casting your votes via jcpodcast.com and over 2,000 of you cast your votes and the number of votes separating the top three was close right up until the very last minute. Uh, the winner will take home a car detailing kit from Jaguar Enthusiast Club partners, Maguire's. And I have the results of the vote now. And the winner of the Virtual Jaguar Festival Concours de Elegance has been announced as Alan Bowman with his 1960 Jaguar Mark II 3.8 litre. Alan said on his entry that OVG 142 was built on the 25th of March 1960. Alan thinks it could be one of the oldest surviving right-hand drive 3.8 automatics, and he became the second owner way back in 1965. He covered the car's history up to 2010 in two Mark II forum articles that appeared in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club magazine. A more recent restoration was based around Graham Whitehouse rebuilding the torque converter and gearbox, Hardy Engineering rebuilding the differential, and Alan himself rebuilding the engine working single-handedly in his garage at home. Alan says that he's always tried to retain the car's authenticity, all the major structural components or other panels were replaced in the early years when either factory parts or genuine unmarked second-hand alternatives were available, and all the other items have been painstakingly refurbished whenever no truly like-for-like aftermarket products existed. He says throughout, his aim has been to ensure that his Mark II matches as closely as possible its condition and specification when new. So well done, Alan Bowman. Also, two runners-up were voted for by you, and they both received Maguire's gift pack bundles as well. And in second place was Brian Riley with the 1984 Jaguar XJS. And in third place, taking home the final bundle from Maguire's, is Adrian Sewell with his 1963 Mark X. They will receive those courtesy of Maguire's, of course, partners of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. And the Concours de Elegance will remain viewable alongside all the video and audio and other content from the Virtual Jaguar Festival until the end of summer at jcpodcast.com. Just click the Virtual Festival and hopefully we can get a chat with Alan Bowman, our winner, to find out a little bit more about that amazing Mark II that all of you guys voting loved so much. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Now with more memories from a lifetime in motorsport, Richard West gives us an insight into the sheer size of the logistics required to get the average race team out on the road. Richard, it's a huge operation, isn't it? It is, Wayne, and it just continually has grown in size up until obviously the COVID outbreak you know, put a stop to, to many of the activities we're all familiar with. Um, if I go right the way back you know, to the start of my career in, in the early to mid-80s, 
transport then was a big issue. And as I, re- I remember going to Williams for the first time and seeing three articulated transporters all in the colours of the team. And I thought, good Lord, what on earth, you know, is in those. But when you, when you look at those transporters, they are literally mobile workshops. And as the sport has developed over the decades to where we are today, I believe I'm right in saying, a gentleman told me recently, that when you see uh, a normal Formula One paddock today, if there is such a thing, you see these enormous uh, media centre and hospitality centres. And the McLaren one, which is a beautiful curve-fronted building normally in glass, takes 13 articulated lorries to transport the components for that construction across Europe. And then, of course, you have the flyaway races. So in, in any form of motorsport, we refer to either, you know, home-based, which is the country of operation, you refer to Europe, and then you talk about flyaways, and they can be on any of the other continents where it's necessary to get equipment onto an aeroplane and flown across. And in the case of Formula One, up until about a year ago, the man in charge of all those logistics was a, a, a former Brabham mechanic by the name of Alan Woolard. And it was Alan's job to uh, coordinate the movement of all of those tens of thousands of kilograms of freight and equipment to the flyaway races. And I remember him telling me that uh, we got up, I think, at one point um, before the new owners, Liberty Media, took control of it. Alan was having to charter five, seven, four, seven or equivalent freighters in order just to move the stock across the seas for those uh, particular races in Australia or South America or Japan or wherever. So, of course, the planning for a team that goes on behind that is immense. Uh, In the early McLaren days, we had a lady called Liz Wood there who only recently, I believe, retired. And Liz would be booking hotels. She would be booking freight. She would be booking ground logistics at the other end, as we used to refer to it, uh, up to a year in advance. Because without that pre-booking, you would miss out on some of those services that were so essential to moving the freight around at the other end. How different is it with the more modern Formula One world? Because they do have the benefit of having more modern materials to build these things with uh, than perhaps TWR had in the 80s. But it's an even bigger operation now, isn't it? Well, it is. And also the the costs of air freight have increased very dramatically. I was talking to a guy just yesterday, actually, whose business, believe it or not, is sewing machines, and he's he's done the equivalent of a year's turnover in just one month because so many people in the COVID situation are either looking for new hobbies or finding things uh, to do that people are buying literally hundreds of sewing machines a week. But the relevance of that to your question is that where he's suffering at the moment is because there is very little air freight at the moment, he's having to ship all of his goods in from Taiwan and from uh, Japan and China via surface freight. And some of the surface freight rates have tripled in the last couple of months because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Now, if you, if you look back into your question about modern materials, what's actually happened with some of the teams, and I know, in fact, I think the majority of the teams, we used to fly, uh, be it sports car racing or Formula One, we used to fly all of our equipment because at one point it was a relatively cheap thing to do. The cost of air freight pre-COVID had increased to such a level that many of the teams were actually making two or three sets of pit equipment in terms of car lifts or jacks or stands to put the bodywork on, etc. And they were sending them by shipping freight. And in some cases, they were actually leaving them behind because it was actually cheaper to make you know two or three sets of equipment than it was actually put everything in it in a shipping container or put it into a uh, aircraft hold and fly it around the world. So constantly what you have behind the scenes and you going back to your, your introduction, you have a raft of people that you never actually see. 
you have logistics drivers, you have uh, planners rather, you have truck drivers, you have packers, you have people who are very, very skilled at working out loadings within given containers. And of course, if you've got a packing case that's got 4,000 kilos of freight in it, you don't actually want a packing case that weighs 400 kilos. So I'm lucky enough to own some of the old Benetton packing cases from the 1980s, early 90s. And even they are super lightweight. And in fact, you have to take all of that into consideration because you are actually charged by the kilo. And of course, if you've got 10, 12,000 kilos of freight, you certainly don't want to add a 2,000 kilo set of packing cases on top of that. So you do see lightweight materials used, as you say. You see aluminium shapes around them. And the whole thing is done to try and plan around the cost. Because the one thing you do find in motorsport it's very, very easy to spend, spend money unless you keep a very close eye on things. Something that's always amazed me working around race circuits is on the Sunday afternoon after the race has finished, this is particularly apparent at endurance racing where this often happens sort of midway through the race if a team has had to withdraw for whatever reason. It's just how fast it all gets packed away and cleared off, you know. It's, it's gone within hours, isn't it? It is. I mean, and in fact, some of the sprint races in the in the, in the um, Group C days, Keith Bartridge and his brother were our, were our main truck drivers uh, within the TWR organisation. They would literally, as the lights went out and the race started, if you walked to the back of the garage, all the non-essential items were always being packed up. And I said to Keith, do you really ever get to start to see, see the race? And he said, not really. He said, I'm on the refuelling crew. So he said, obviously, I know when I've got to get my ovals on and get out in the pits ready to refuel. But up until a couple of laps before that, myself and my team of guys and girls will be packing everything away. And the same in Formula One. You go into the back of the garage when the red lights have gone out and you'll see the team packing everything up. Because the one thing about any form of motor racing, and this is why it's such a good analogy for business, and you know, I and many others like Mark Gallagher and other people over the years, Ken Pasternak, Mark Jenkins, my co-authors, we've used it as a business model is what it actually does is it proves that there are immovable deadlines. And if you've got immovable deadlines, every minute counts. And as you rightfully say, the team are on it, whether the race has just started or immediately after it, because everything has to be back in those trucks and literally on the road, either back to the base where the teams are based or on to the next race. And of course, if it's going on to the next race, there'll be a team of road transport waiting there to load the containers and the boxes They'll be loading those onto a ship or an aircraft. Uh, if it's a back-to-back, it will literally, in the same country, have to go by a fleet of delivery. And 48 hours later, that same equipment is being unloaded and put in the fresh pit lane, ready for everybody to descend and start the next weekend's motorsport. So it's a really, really intense business. And what we don't see any of us in the main, unless we're actually involved in the sport, the public never see it. There's this amazing group of people that exists behind the scenes that organize all of this stuff, book all of the freight, book all of the hotel rooms and make everything work seamlessly. And without them, quite frankly, no racing just wouldn't happen. Well, we know all about immovable deadlines to bring you this podcast every week via the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Uh, thanks to Richard there for more of his memories. And more immovable deadlines uh, cropped up for Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar, who, of course, was preparing his XJ6 for racing in the first round of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship at Thruxton. Let's hear how he got on. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge with the Jaguar model experts. Time now to join Tom Robinson behind the scenes at Thruxton. 
I just got to Fruxton, managed to stop off at um, a Shell petrol station on the way and get some 99 Ron B power. Um, we always try to use that where we can with this car. Um, so it looks like it's going to be dry for the qualifying session. So we're out in about 25 minutes. Um, so we're just making some last minute changes to the car. We're just going to stiffen the front up. We sort of had the damper set mid-range so we could go either way, whether it was going to be wet or dry for the qualifier. So it's definitely going to be dry by the looks of things for our actual qualifying session. So we're going to stiffer the front up, just adjust the tyre pressures a little bit. Well, qualifying was a little bit of a disaster. Um, managed to get a couple of laps in warming the tyres and the car just felt um, drastically underpowered. And I could hear quite a loud air noise moving in the engine bay. So I managed to coast back into the pits. Um, luckily, uh, Jack was there. He was able to pull the bonnet off, um, take a quick look. And we actually um, blew a boost hose off from the throttle body. Um, it looks like it was down to the actual Jubilee clip itself. Um, it was tight, um, but it was actually quite worn. We unfortunately took all of these off and inspected them, so which is a little bit frustrating. But luckily, we had a spare set of clips there. We're able to refit the hose. Um, I was able then to get out for another two to three laps, which we need to do to actually qualify for race one. So um, unfortunately we had cold tires, so I just had to push as hard as I could, as quickly as I could to try and get a lap in, which we managed to. Um, and we've recovered a little bit. I'm, I'm quite happy because we managed to, to put it in third um, overall on the grid, which, which I am genuinely pleased about um, considering the circumstances. But then again, a little bit frustrated that we had that issue, but but, that, but that's racing. So um, we're going to get the car back. Um, we're actually going to replace all of the Jubilee clips on the intake system, even though they're not very old, just to bolt and brace it to make sure we don't get an issue in the race. Um, we're starting further on the grid, um, which is second in class, which is good news. We've got um, James Ram in front of us and Colin on pole. Um, we've had some good races with both of those uh, the last round here so um, not sure if it's going to be wet yet for the first race but that's at two o'clock so what i'll probably do is i'll leave that till last minute depending whether we change to a wet setup um, but yeah i mean generally calf did feel really good which i'm which i'm pleased about it still feels pretty different to what it did before so it's definitely going to take some getting used to um, but no all, all good news on that front just been called up for race one. Um, it has started raining. It's not raining heavily at the moment. It is literally just drizzle. So there's no sitting water on the track. So we've decided to stay with the setup we are. We are gonna just weaken off the dampers just to make it a little bit compliant in case it does get suddenly heavier. Um, but it does look like it's gonna stay, stay as it is. We've had the lunch break, so we're the first race out after lunch. So there won't be any dry lines to start with, but I think with all of us moving around, um, it will dry out fairly quickly as long as we don't have any further rain. So we're, we're starting, as I said, on um, in third, which means we're middle of the grid, um, which actually gives you quite a good run into the first couple of corners. Um, pole is almost a bit of a disadvantage here because it's on the inside, so you can often get an actual better start from second on the grid. So hopefully we can get a good start and get away, um, and that will give us a good shot at giving sort of Colin and James a run for their money. So fingers crossed um, a little bit nervous um, especially with the interchangeable conditions it's uh, um, not ideal it's it's always uh, 
um, awkward with the first couple of corners with changing conditions, especially um, here as it can get quite greasy. Last race one finished, um, had a pretty consistent result actually, finished up in third overall. Um, I did manage to get past um, Colin and, and was in second for most of the race, um, to be honest with you, but um, fair play to Colin, he managed to, to pit me on um, pretty much the, the last lap as the race was, was ended early due to a red flag scenario, so that was a little bit of a shame, um, didn't get a chance at trying to get back past him, but um, we had a really good battle between us for, for the whole race, so I, I stayed pretty much um, entertained the whole way around and had to work pretty, pretty hard to stay there. Um, James, to be honest with you um, wasn't really hassled so he had a, a good clean run and he's pretty unstoppable in the wet the, the the rain did continue so it was it was a wet race for for most of it we did start to get some drying lines um, but it was quite challenging um, as the sort of grip would come and go um, but no um, Colin managed to overtake me um, when we come up against some bat markers and unfortunately I decided to go up the inside he went around the outside and, and managed to make it stick and get past both of us so um, a little, little bit of a shame but still really pleased with, with a great result um, that's second in class third overall um, and first saloon which is which is brilliant so for the first time we've been out in the car in the wet I'm, I'm over the moon to be honest um definitely had to work for it feeling pretty tired now um so i'm probably going to try and get a, a little bit of a rest before the uh the next um next race which isn't until last thing today it's about five o'clock uh, by the looks of things it's definitely going to be a full wet race so um there's not really any tweaks we need to do to the car we're probably just going to convert it over to a full wet setup and adjust all the tire pressures um, I think there's going to be a lot of sitting water at that point, but um, we're going to then have a ball draw. So for this second race, um, uh, basically a number is pulled out of the hat and that will jumble the, the front five cars on the grid. Um, this is just to mix things up a little bit. So um, we'll see how that sort of puts us in position for the next race but we could be anywhere within the top five for the, for the first race so um that definitely makes things a little bit more interesting and uh um yeah we'll give it another shot and see if we can uh, get past colin and james ball draw actually pulled the number one straight out so there is no change to the grid formation so basically our race one results is where we'll start on the grid for race two we are going for the full wet setup it's absolutely pouring it down here and it doesn't look like it's going to stop so i think it's pretty much set in for the full wet race well race two is pretty interesting um as i said absolutely pouring with rain for most of it um, and on one of the um, first laps, unfortunately, there was a pretty much a uh, oil that started from the start-finish line all the way round to the pit exit, um, which was right in the middle of the racing line. So it was really, really greasy. Quite a few other drivers in our series and cars got caught out with the oil um, and unfortunately didn't finish a race. So it was really, really interchangeable conditions. But we had a great race. We managed to get... Um, I had actually had a bit of a poor start um, I actually dropped a couple of places um, but that then led me to be able to, to get the inside line into the to the second corner and managed to get back up into third um, and then we also managed to pass Colin as well for second overall um, which
which was also second in class and and yeah we we had a bit of a bit of a lonely race after that to be honest with you we managed to put in some real hot laps and get away from from the pack and uh, James was was way out in front and unfortunately he was too far ahead for me to to even try to attempt to catch him to be honest um, so we we spent most of the race um, on our own and uh, yeah it was a uh, car was absolutely brilliant it was like a sewing machine so really really pleased with how the car was and it was very predictable considering the conditions so oh, I'm really happy to be honest and um, it's been a great weekend and, and some great results for us with the first time out in the car so overall that means that we had two second in class finishes a third in race one and also a second in race two which is just brilliant and uh, we were also the fastest saloon and first saloon in both races so we've won a separate trophy for that so no I'm, I'm really really pleased <laughs> Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, now on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast, we've had some high profile interviews over the past 16 weeks. Uh, we've interviewed people like Martin Brundle, Mike Wilds, Kevin McLeod, Carl Jones, and Wynn Percy, all names that I know are heroes of our next man to interview here on the podcast. We're talking to Rob Jenner, who is a previous chairman of the club, and he speaks to us from up there in Scotland somewhere. Hiya, Rob. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Very well, thanks. And I uh, understand you've been uh, hauled away up to Berwick, which is, uh, of course, where you live with your marvellous collection of Jaguars, which we'll get into in a second. But how has it been up there during all these crazy times and lockdown and whatever else? It's been interesting, to be honest with you, and I hate to say it, but we've had a really good lockdown because the travelling has stopped. So it's been time to get the collection sorted. The cars have been out. Um, we found new locations to photograph them around the house where we live. So, yeah, we've had a, a reasonable time, Wayne, to be honest with you. Let's talk about your Jaguar collection because it's pretty impressive. And before anyone listening goes, oh, no, it's another multi-billionaire's collection of Jaguars I'll never be able to afford. That's kind of far from the truth, isn't it, really, with your collection? You have a nice collection of Jaguars that we can all relate to. Tell us what you've got. Yeah, my, mine have been collected over the years, Wayne, and, and bought and sold to form the collection that we currently have. And as you rightly say, they're... they're cars that are eminently reachable or within reach of most people um mainly xj40s uh, a couple of x300s and our everyday cars of course an x351 a 350 and a couple of x-type vans that we use for moving stuff around and that of course is just the jaguars well, yeah, because you are multi-mark and you're a big fan of the British marks and another big fan of Triumph, aren't you? Yeah, Triumph is where my roots lie, really, as as you know, because you and I go back a long way in the Triumph world. Um, but there's a natural progression. And what I notice within car clubs, especially Jaguar and Triumph and, and one other club that's non-British, that there is a, a huge crossover. A lot of Triumph people have a Jaguar. A lot of Jaguar people have a Triumph. Um, you know, there's there's a commonality there. It's amazing how many people I speak to at a Triumph event that go, oh, you're Rob Jenner from the Jaguar Club or the Jaguar Enthusiast Club or vice versa at um, Jaguar events. Oh, you're the guy from the Transport 6 Club or the TR Register. Of course, you grew up around the British motor industry, didn't you? I was born in Earlsdon in Coventry, so I'm a, I'm a proper sky blue man. Um, but the family moved very quickly to Kenilworth 
And Dad worked at the Standard Motor Company in his early years, which, of course, became Standard Triumph, which, of course, became British Leylands. And in the Egan era, he went to Browns Lane. Let's go back even further than that, though, Rob, because during VE Day earlier this year, I wrote an article about Jaguar's history and what it was doing basically to survive during the war and some of the products that it made for the war effort and you on the back of that article told me a phenomenal story about how your dad nearly didn't survive the second world war tell us more well that that's it's something that he he mentioned through his life but didn't tell us very much about but uh, at his funeral he, he asked somebody to read out a letter that he'd written about his life and it's quite touching because it's a two and a half page letter of a4 but the first half page is his early life and the last half page is his life after the war and up until his his death in 2013 um but the the middle page and a half is purely about one night and the following days which was, of course, the Coventry Blitz. In 1938, the family moved back to Coventry. My grandfather moved from the Ferry Aircraft Company back to Coventry to work in the machine shops for, obviously, the upcoming war effort. Probably not a good move in 1938, because, as we know, in 1939, war broke out. And uh, my family were living, or my dad's family were living in, in the centre of Coventry at the time. And... Um, of course, 1940, uh, November, Moonlight Sonata, the Coventry Blitz. And Sod's Law, of course, they get bombed out. The house or the street take a direct hit. And I've only found this out in, in recent years. And my father was buried alive, essentially. And without going back and looking at the details of it, I believe he was buried for three days and trapped by his head. Um, and he was taken away, when they found him, he was taken away to Warwick Hospital, which is some 15 miles away, I guess. And, of course, no transport in those days of such. Nobody drove a car as such. Um, and my grandmother, um, with a two-year-old daughter, my dad's sister at the time, of course, couldn't find my father. And it was nine or ten days before they found out he was in Warwick Hospital. Now, that to me must have been absolutely excruciatingly desperate days. Um, and the interesting thing is that it, it, the, the blast blew my dad's trousers off. And I could never understand why, even growing up as, as a child and, and as a teenager, he never ever used to like to be caught, shall we say, with his trousers down. He always had to have his trousers on. Imagine that, a nine-year-old being found with your trousers blown off you know being buried quite frightening i have to say um so that was the night of moonlight sonata in coventry and, and my dad's story um and then of course in 1946 he became an apprentice to the standard motor company at banner lane um which had been a shadow factory during the war so you know it must have been an interesting time in coventry then that i really don't have a huge amount I've, I've only got the stories that i've been told you know credible story really that that links you and your family 
sort of inextricably to the British motor industry. And of course, as we know, it took a real beating in Coventry during the Blitz and during the the latter years of the war in particular, and, and took many years to rebuild. And of course, the motor industry being crucial to rebuilding um, that city and, and the economy in that area of the Midlands. So I guess that shows just how much your family's been linked to those cars ever since. And he went on to have a fantastic career in the British motor industry and there's some great stories aren't there from the guys that used to work at Standard Triumph at uh, factories like Banner Lane and others and at Jaguar and in particular I know there's a great story of how he would help his mates get various components rebuilt sort of through the back door on a weekend job sort of thing (laughs) tell us about the the gearboxes that used to go in one and come out the other (laughs) no 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 those sort of things never happened Wayne I promise you they're, they're all myths I never saw I never saw any evidence of that ever, <laughs> apart from every Saturday morning. Um, and I, as a as a, a mad youngster, um, I was mad in those days. As as you've probably been told, I've calmed down an awful lot now, and I'm more sensible and mature. Um, but we used to run Triumph Vitesses and TRs around around Kenilworth and Coventry. Um, probably driven too fast and too hard over the years. And you're a Triumph man, Wayne. You know how fragile certainly a Vitesse gearbox can be when caned. Mm-hmm. And we used to blow them up on a regular a regular basis. So Friday night was spent taking the gearbox out of the car. And Dad and I could do that in about 20 minutes. Um, into the boot of his car, over to Canley, which was called the Rocket Range, uh, in through the gates with a dirty gearbox, in the boot and if you ever get stopped standard trance security used to look in your boot and you'd got a dirty gearbox in your boot into the gearbox shop where the foreman used to work saturdays doing what we call homers for cigarettes and the the plan was or it always was that he would put a new gear set in your dirty outside casing so that when you went back out of the gates if you were ever stopped you've got a dirty gearbox going back out and that was how we used to get our gearboxes rebuilt (laughs) there was a cost there was a cost to this it was 200 sorry it was 100 cigarettes and it was the red embassy if anybody remembers those if there are any smokers or ex-smokers amongst us the gearbox shop foreman never bought cigarettes and the the back story to that is is a lovely one some years ago Wayne I was down in Portsmouth doing a talk to the Portsmouth region my great friend Mike Kennedy and Mike like you and asked for some anecdotes of stuff that went on and I thought the gearbox story was was a really good one because we were party to it we kind of knew what happened we knew what the the script was and I knew that in the audience there was a very senior Jaguar person and I couldn't remember at the time whether he was retired from Jaguar or whether he was about to retire his name will remain nameless but he is certainly a member of the club at the moment and so I decided I'd do some triumph stories and I said due to this gentleman being in the audience I will keep the Jaguar stories to an absolute minimum so I do the gearbox story I do my talk and at the end of the talk I I throw it open to the audience and I say, are there any questions? 
and this gentleman stands up and introduces himself as said senior Jaguar person. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What's he going to ask me? And he said, I'd just like to point out, Rob, he said, um, you didn't know I worked at uh, Standard Triumph before Jaguar, did you? And I went, no. And he said, well, your dad wasn't a very good negotiator because I was getting my gearboxes done for 20 cigarettes. <laughs> Amazing. But it just goes to show an insight into how different the British motor industry was then. It was informal, wasn't it? And it was very relaxed. It was incredibly relaxed. Um, people knew people. People got things done. Um, you know, it, it was just a different world. I can remember us ordering or dad ordering a brand new Triumph Vitesse on the, interestingly enough, the standard Triumph discount scheme and when you got your invoice it said std 23 percent std now of course means <laughs> something completely different um but we i was taken out of school in 1965 for the day and taken to the rocket range in coventry the canley factory the assembly plant and we watched this car being built from the de from the minute that the bare body shell entered the building and we walked down the line with it and as we got to each station dad would say that's my car that is you know and somebody would go all right alan and remarkably this triumph vitesse would end up with things like triumph courier van wheels which were half an inch wider leather seats twin strongberg carburetors before they actually became production items sunroof different colored flash on the side all these sort of things so Wayne, when you're at your Triumph events and you're judging these cars and you go, they never came out of the factory like that, mm, they might have done. Mm -hmm. Yes, depends you who, who was asking. It when it was new. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you were growing up in Kenilworth, was there a real feeling that you were part of a motor industry community there? Because it wasn't just standard Triumph in the area, it was Jaguar, it was the Roots Group factory as well in the early days, of course. They were all based around that area. Was there a real sense like northern communities have around mining that you were all linked to the cars in some way or another? Looking back on it, because you're a child and a teenager, to be honest with you, probably not. It was just dad went to work to earn money to feed the family. I think looking back on it, Wayne, I was a, a teenager and I grew up in it. So it was the norm. And everybody where we lived worked for one of the car factories or worked for one of the supply chain companies. Um, so it was just the norm. Dad didn't think he was doing anything special at the time. He went to work. He, he earns a wage to feed the family, essentially. Um, it was just... It just didn't register at the time. But now when I look back on it, um, I've, I've got that wish that I'd perhaps been more involved in the time. Parts came to us very easily. Cars came to us very easily because of where we were. But a bit like the guys in the factory, it was almost, it was the norm and it was your you're right that you could go and get something for parts and you knew people where these parts were available. It was just how it was, yeah? One of the biggest myths around the British motor industry from that period of time, and you'll have an insight into this, is that 
the British media always portrayed the workforce there to be completely non-passionate about the work that they were doing. They weren't really into what they were building. They'd take any excuse to strike and they were in it for what they could get out of it and they'd do a nine-to-five and go off home. But the more and more you talk to people who actually worked in those factories and actually built those cars and were around the industry at that time, the more I find that is completely false. People did have a passion for those cars and what they were doing and the work that they were producing, didn't they? Very much so. Um I, I can't speak too much about Browns Lane because I, I didn't have a huge involvement because I wasn't in the Midlands while Dad was there. Um, I can speak, you know, closely about Triumph. And yes, there was a huge, huge amount of passion from those guys. Whatever happens, Wayne, in whatever line of work you're in, you will always get the people that will come in to get what they can from it to do as little as possible. But you only have to look at some of the guys that were in design, experimental, racing. Um, look at the stories that there are that you know in the Triumph world. Look at the stories are, there are from Browns Lane about the Saturday Club, about Jim Randall. You know? They were passionate guys and visionary yeah. as well. And in many ways, more visionary and more passionate because they were up against tough budgets and difficulties within the company difficulties in the economy yet they still managed to turn out some truly iconic vehicles at the same time indeed yeah um and you know if bl and and bmw and etc hadn't all come along what brands would still be left would we still have you know uh, triumph out there what to, to me, we should bring that, bring it, bring that name back. We should put it on something. Um, you know, Jaguar is lucky it survived because the, this is how passionate the workers were. They took down the Jaguar sign at Browns Lane when was it Michael Edwards wanted to call it Large Car Plant Number Two or something, and they put the British Leyland plug hole sign up over the gates, uh -huh. and they took the sign down and hid it so they couldn't destroy it. Uh -huh. That's how passionate those guys were. Yeah. Well, growing up around that industry and around those people must have had an effect on you at some point, Rob, because you are one of the biggest Jaguar fanatics and one of the biggest car fanatics I know. When was the point in your life where you really started to get really heavily into the car scene, into the club scene, and to start your collection of Jaguars? I have always been around cars all my life and I was driving my mother and father's cars off road when I was about 13, 14. I had my first car when I was 16, um, remarkably bought from um, the people that lived at the back of me in Kenilworth who uh, I ended up becoming huge friends with. I'm, I was his best man. I'm godfather to their two children. Um, uh, his dad worked at Jaguar. His mum worked at Jaguar. He worked at Jaguar for 38 years, I think, before he retired this year. Um, so always been around it. Um, then we started to realise that these cars were going to start to disappear and the world was changing. And we ended up with a couple of car clubs starting up and, and starting to protect what there was and that was the tr register which i joined way way back um 
I think probably before you were on this planet, if I'm <laughs> honest about it. Um, and the Transport 6 Club started in 77 uh, when I was living in Warwick at the time. And my membership number is one of the very earliest there is left. Um, you know, it, it's so that that takes you back to 77 at least when I got involved in the car club scene. Um, and I've been area organiser for various groups and clubs over the years. I moved away, as, as some of our members know, to Shetland in the 80s, and I formed the Shetland Classic Car Club up there. I became their first chairman. I still go back every two years to the classic show there. My membership number there is still number one. And it was there that I bought my first Jaguar. But it wasn't there that really got me into Jaguar. Well, next week, Rob reveals just what it was that started his love affair with Jaguar, and we discuss his favourite models, including the XJ40 and X-Type, all next time on the JC Podcast. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic free magazine that you will get as a member of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.